Genesis 37, verses 1 to 28. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Well, they've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up, and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, 
What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Now we are rather flying through these stories of this first family of the covenant, which means that once more a lot has happened in this story between what happened last week and what happens this week. Last week we left Jacob with his two wives instead of one wife. And as we said last week, Leah starts to have children, four to be precise, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And Rachel, distraught at not being able to have children, tells Jacob to sleep with her servant Bilhah so Bilhah could bear a child in Rachel's stud. So Bilhah has two children with Jacob, Dan and Naphtali. And then Leah, upset that she has stopped having children, tells Jacob to sleep with her maid servant, Zilpah. And so Zilpah has two sons, Gad and Asher. Then Leah ends up having a couple more kids, Issachar and Zebulun. And finally, Rachel has another son named Joseph. Jacob is just as adept at raising sheep as he is at having sons. And so while all of this familial drama is happening, he is steadily gaining wealth and making a name for himself. Then Laban and Jacob get into a rather heated dispute over whose sheep belong to who. And God tells Jacob that it's time to return to the land of his fathers before Laban does anything drastic. So Jacob packs up his wives and his sons and his servants and his flocks and his whole household and takes off. Laban pursues, they hash things out and make a covenant. Laban goes home, Jacob continues on his way. He sends gifts, a lot of gifts ahead of him to hopefully appease Esau, who was waiting for him at home. And then just before returning to his homeland, Jacob has a wrestling match with God that leaves Jacob with a permanent limp and a new name, Israel. He receives a surprisingly warm welcome from Esau and Jacob, after years of scheming and running, finally settles in at home with his wives and sons. Rachel has one more son, Benjamin, but then dies in that childbirth. Rebecca and Isaac, Jacob and Esau's parents, then also die of old age. And now Jacob is the patriarch of the family with sons ranging from small boy to fully grown adult man. And while I'm sure that Jacob loved all of his sons, it's Joseph, the second youngest, that he loves best. And he's not shy about his love for this son. He dotes on Joseph, he gives him preferential treatment and bestows gifts on him, including a magnificent and expensive robe. Understandably, 
this does not sit well with the other brothers. And Joseph doesn't really do any favors for himself, does he? He's not the most emotionally intelligent of people. Can't read a room to save his life. He has these dreams. One in which his brother's sheaves of wheat bow down to his. Another where the sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down to him. And Joseph comes down for breakfast in the morning and reports these dreams to his brothers, who again, kind of understandably, don't take this very well. Their hatred of Joseph grows and grows and grows until one day when Joseph is sent to take stock of his brother's work and bring back a report to his father, his brothers decide that this is their opportunity to get rid of their pesky younger brother. And maybe they want him dead because they hate him, just because they're jealous of him, because the sight of him is a reminder that they will never be loved as much as he is. Or maybe because they're worried that he might actually be a threat. After all, in this day, dreams weren't just fun anecdotes that you told your colleagues at lunch. Dreams meant something. They carried weight. They needed interpreting. They were seen to be true markers of what was to come. And these dreams of Joseph were dangerous. They saw a world in which the the current order of things was undone, where the last was first, where everything the brothers had counted on might be taken away from them. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, says that dreams permit the imagining of new political possibilities which immediately threaten the old and call it into question. So the dream threatens the brothers and the empire. So the brothers decide to kill the dream. Seeing Joseph in the distance, they decide to kill him, throw his body in a cistern, and tell everyone that a wild animal got him. Only Reuben intervenes. He doesn't actually want to kill Joseph. We don't know why. Maybe he actually kind of liked Joseph. Maybe just as the oldest brother, he was a little more calm than the rest of them. Maybe it was just his conscience telling him no. But he tries to rescue Joseph. Tells his brothers, throw him in the cistern, but don't kill him yourself. Let him, let him die there of thirst. All the while intending to circle back later and rescue Joseph without anyone knowing. And on first glance, this seems admirable, right? Reuben at least wants to do the right thing. But he isn't quite brave enough to say this out loud. He won't come to Joseph's defense in front of his brothers. He won't tell them that what they're doing is wrong. Brueggemann calls Reuben a responsible coward. And killers of the dream, says Brueggemann, will not be restrained 
by a responsible coward. So presumably, while Reuben has wandered off to take care of some problem with the flock, his brother Judah, another responsible coward, makes his own plan. And Joseph is sold to a caravan heading for Egypt. Dreamer gone, dream dead. And Reuben, when he returns to find the cistern empty, is now left with nothing to do except join his brothers in the following deception. I think of all the characters in this rather miserable story, it's probably Reuben that we most identify with. Most of us are not the the helpless outcast who's thrown aside or the wrathful gang bent on eliminating a problem at all cost. We're the people just trying to get by, to live life, to do the work in front of us in a mostly peaceful way. We like to think that we have a pretty good handle on what's right and what's wrong. We're compassionate and we're kind and we're responsible. We try to do the right thing. But are we also sometimes responsible cowards? Do we also find ourselves complicit in injustice, not because of our action, but because of our inaction, because of our silence? Maybe you grew up with someone, let's call her Sally. She was your best friend for years as a kid. She was a little different, but that didn't matter when you were 10. But then you went to a big high school and you found some new friends and your new friends think that Sally is weird. So you keep your friendship with Sally, but only on weekends and only ever at her house. At school, you keep your head down when Sally passes you in the hallway and you don't say anything when other people make fun of her. Maybe you have a coworker who was blamed for a mistake that cost your company thousands of dollars. And you know that that mistake was actually the fault of another of your colleagues. But that colleague happens to be the son of your boss. And so to tell the truth, might jeopardize your job. So you watch as your coworker is demoted and given a pay cut. You inwardly pledge to include him in as many projects as possible to try and bolster his reputation again, but you don't correct the falsehood. You let him carry the blame. Maybe it's a refusal to put your voice behind protecting an affordable housing complex because it's our friend's company who's trying to buy out that complex to tear it down and build new condos. Or maybe it's a racist joke that we just let slide. Or a person being harassed outside of a store and we just hurry off in the other direction. 
And we tell ourselves, well, in, in my life, in my interactions with people, I'm nice, I'm good, I'm kind, and other people, other people will do what's right in these situations. I'll just add a charity donation towards the homeless shelter when I check out at Shoppers. That's, that's enough, right? It wasn't enough for Joseph. All of Reuben's good intentions and secret plans maybe kept him alive, but they didn't keep him from being sold into slavery. There wasn't justice in what Reuben did, only a lesser injustice. The good news for Joseph is that his fate does not lie in the hands of Reuben, or any of his brothers, for that matter. Joseph's fate, Joseph's life, is held firmly by God. We will see in the next few weeks just how God will be with Joseph in the lowest of valleys and on the highest of mountains, ultimately using Joseph to save a nation and to save his brothers. We will see how God has not abandoned Joseph, how God has not abandoned the dream. Martin Luther King Jr. said once that he had a dream. On August 28, 1963, 60 years ago tomorrow, standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., he declared that this was the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. I have a dream, he said, that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And then he quotes Isaiah 40. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. King's dream, of course, would not be fully realized in his lifetime. King's was a dream that imagined new political possibilities which immediately threatened the old and called it into question. So people fought against his dream. We still live in a world marked by racism and classism and prejudice. But by including Isaiah 40, a vision of eschatological hope, the ultimate King situates his dream in a story where justice is not left ultimately to people, but to God. And that hope allowed Martin Luther King Jr. to repeat another of his now famous quotes. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Now I gotta tell you, when you Google that quote, 
you discover that a good number of people do not like that quote. One such person is Michael Denzel Smith, who wrote in a HuffPost article that use of this quotation carries the risk of magical thinking. After all, if the arc of the moral universe will inevitably bend toward justice, then there is no reason for us to work toward that justice as it's preordained. If it is only a matter of cosmic influence, if there is no human role, then we are off the hook. In other words, Smith is saying, doesn't this idea that someone greater than us is ultimately responsible for moving the world toward justice, let us do exactly what Reuben did and sit back and protect our own skin because some great divine power will take care of that poor soul over there. Well, this quote is actually a shorter, pithier version of a quote from a sermon by the abolitionist preacher Theodore Parker, delivered in 1853. In this sermon, Parker says, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience, and from what I see, I am sure it bends towards justice. And later in that sermon, Parker says this, in human affairs, the justice of God must work by human means. Men are the measures of God's principles. Our morality, the instruments of his justice, which stilleth alike the waves of the sea, the tumults of the people, and the oppressor's brutal rage. You and I may help deepen the channel of human morality in which God's justice runs, and the wrecks of evil, which now check the stream, be borne off the sooner by the strong, all-conquering tide of right the river of God that is full of blessing. The arc of the moral universe bends towards justice because God holds the universe in his hands. But you and I are called to be the hands and feet of justice in the world, deepening the channel through which God's justice runs. And I know justice is a tricky concept these days. Determining what justice looks like in some situations can be difficult. But I would argue that in most instances, at least the ones I mentioned earlier, we have a pretty good idea of what is right, of what is just. And if we're struggling, here's a definition I came across this week that I find to be rather helpful from Dr. Cornell West, an American philosopher and activist. Justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. 
Justice is choosing to be friends with Sally, not just when it's the two of you at her house, but in the chem lab too. Justice is telling your boss what really happened with the company finances. Justice is calling up your friend and asking if there isn't another site for his condos. Maybe writing an op-ed for the local paper on the importance of affordable housing. Justice is stepping in to defend the person being harassed and calling out the racist joke. Justice is protecting the younger brother, even if it costs you the favor of the other nine. Justice, says West, is living with unarmed truth and unapologetic love, a love that leads us to tell the truth, even at great cost to self. You do not need me to tell you that that is not easy and that we will not do this perfectly. But the God of justice is also incredibly the God of mercy. And this God loved his people so much that he bore the greatest cost of all and sent his son to die for us so that we might know the greatest truth of all, that there is life after death, hope in despair, light in darkness, and a mercy that is new every morning. Every morning, a new opportunity to live with unarmed truth and unapologetic love. Every day, another chance to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Another chance to carry forward the dream. The dream that says that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, help us to live with unarmed truth and unapologetic love. Help us to love in public, not just when it is easy, but when it costs us something too. Forgive us when we are silent or slow to speak because we are afraid, because we're tired, because it's just easier to sit back. Give us the courage, the wisdom, and the fortitude to continue to seek justice for our friend and our neighbor and the stranger among us. Use us to deepen the channel through which your river of life flows so that all people might experience the shalom that comes from you. Make us a channel of justice, a channel of love, a channel of peace. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.